You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. I'm Katie Geary. And I'm Angela Wu Howard. In today's episode, we bring a little publicized problem into the light. We live in a pluralistic society, right? But things aren't always harmonious. And sometimes that shows up in disputes over property. Take the story of Rabbi Ruvi New, the leader of the Chabad of East Boca Raton. What happened when Rabbi New's congregation wanted to build a community center to meet their growing needs? I'll give you a hint. It didn't go according to plan, and it involved the Establishment Clause. The Chabad story is a case study in how animosity toward a religious group frequently takes the form of Establishment Clause lawsuits and how the courts can put an end to them. Our story today takes us to Boca Raton, the Florida city known for its beautiful beaches and affluent retirement communities. The hero of our story is Rabbi Ruvi Nu, the spiritual director of the Chabad of East Boca Raton. Rabbi Nu started the Chabad over 20 years ago. For those unfamiliar with the term, Chabad is an Orthodox Jewish Hasidic movement. Organizationally, Chabad is the largest Jewish organization in the world with branches in over 150 countries and every state of the Union. It's a branch within Judaism that goes back uh, 200 years. Its roots are in Russia. Chabad are three Hebrew letters that stand for wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. So philosophically and ideologically, Chabad puts a lot of emphasis on having a relationship with God that is very much relates to us on a intellectual level. So our relationship is, is based on faith and uh, belief, but very much infused with an intellectual understanding and appreciation of God and the universe and our purpose in it. Like many other religious groups, the scale and scope of a particular Chabad depends on its leader. Chabads are very organic. They're really startups, and the rabbis are really like spiritual entrepreneurs. We're not hired by existing congregations that, you know, hire clergy and sign a contract. You know, the rabbi is, is the startup of the organization. And so it takes a while until you, you know, get your feet wet in a community and start to build relationships and, and, and get a better understanding of the community. So it's very typical for a Chabad to start in the living room of the rabbi and his wife, and then, you know, you hopefully grow from there. This was the case for Rabbi New. In 1999, he and his wife started the Chabad of East Boca Raton in their own home. A big part of the growth of any Chabad continues to be in the home of the rabbi and his wife, not from the living room, but uh, more so in the dining room, which is to say that a big part of the growth comes through inviting and sharing the experience of Sabbath together with members of the community and the holidays, you know, for some people being in services, uh, they're not so familiar with that. It could be uh, it could be intimidating, but sitting around a table in a more relaxed social kind of setting is for some people a much easier point of entry, if you will. So it's really very, very organically evolves out of these 
dinners and, and, and lunches and things that you're hosting, which invariably sparks a greater level of interest in exploring Judaism more deeply. And so, uh, and then the, the, that's sort of like the building blocks of how, of how the community starts to build. Uh, so after, um, after a few months, we graduated from a living room to a small 900 square foot storefront. So we were there for like for two years, 2000, 2001. And then 2002, we moved into a larger, this current facility, which is uh, 2,500 square feet. Rabbi Nis Chabad successfully established adult education, youth, and children's programs. Like other Chabads, it was a gathering place for holidays as well as more everyday activities. As the East Boca Chabad community grew over the next decade, so did their need for more space. 2,500 square feet of space really wasn't cutting it. It was time to look into moving into a more fitting property, one that could more reasonably accommodate all the Chabad's programs and give them the opportunity to serve and educate those within and outside of their community. We wanted to create a really diverse kind of center that would be an attraction for all different types of people looking for all different types of experiences. And uh, we had a vision to create a a very high-tech, interactive, educational experience called My Israel to educate the public about the history of Israel, about the spiritual significance of Israel. Rabbi New had been looking at potential properties for years. In 2007, the Chabad had enough community buy-in to start the ball rolling on a new center, and they found what seemed like the perfect spot for it. It was the first plans that we had for a Jewish center on on a, a road where there are two churches, and and so we chose that road for that reason. And uh, we thought, you know, if there's if there could be two churches on that road, which is called Meisner Boulevard, then it's a, a reasonable place and a, a logical place for us to to put a uh, a Jewish center. You know, I, I expected that we would, you know, submit plans and uh, go through the regular channels of uh, public hearings and and get approved. Um, I did not anticipate in any way the firestorm of opposition to our first plans in 2008. Um, it definitely caught us off guard. I am no zoning law expert, but obviously we all know that different cities have different ordinances and processes for different kinds of buildings. When Rabbi New was trying to build his new Chabad in 2007, the city of Boca Raton had different laws in place regarding houses of worship. The ordinance that was in place before didn't allow houses of worship to be built uh, as of right. That's Daniel Blomberg, senior counsel at Beckett, lead attorney for this case. There was a... Uh, a special disability that houses of worship faced that other types of public assemblies didn't. So, you know, certain types of public assemblies, maybe uh, like a school or a theater or something like that, places where people come together, those types of places were allowed to be built, you know, just as a matter of course in this particular area. But churches weren't, synagogues weren't, mosques weren't. And so that was a, a real discrimination problem, right? Because you had 
these houses of worship that were being treated worse than other types of similar assemblies. This ordinance then meant that houses of worship were also more vulnerable to community opposition. Rabbi New had not anticipated opposition, but that's what he got. When he presented the architectural plans for the Chabad to the community, he said it turned ugly. People, you know, started to talk about how this was going to, quote-unquote, change the nature of the neighborhood, change the face of the neighborhood, thinly veiled language to describe, because this is going to bring an influx of religious Jewish people. Um, and that some, and that it didn't belong in the neighborhood because it was a non-residential facility. The next day, there were signs, you know, posted on lawns, save our neighborhood and neighborhood meetings from which members of the Chabad were excluded. This created a difficult situation. This effort resulted in putting a lot of pressure on the city and creating a zoning ordinance that made the parking threshold so impossible that no religious entity would be able to build under those circumstances and, and made every existing religious entity in town non-conforming and just grandfathered in. We effectively had to uh, walk away from those plans and uh, lost significant funds and down payments that we had put onto these uh, properties and uh, try and then regroup. So in round one, the Chabad had lost a chance at a new center. They weren't going to stop trying, but this loss was significant. It takes time to get the right funding and to find the right spot. It would be another eight years before they were ready for round two. From 2007 to 2015, they went through the whole process. They found a property and they were gonna build in this mixed use area right across the street from a strip mall, right across the street from a 7-Eleven. It was on a, an empty lot that was literally being used for nothing, had previously been used for, I think, a, a French restaurant, and uh, they were going to build a synagogue on it. By then, the city had formally changed its discriminatory laws for building houses of worship. In 2015, they passed a, a new ordinance that said, we're going to treat everybody fairly, we're going to treat everybody equally. And they passed that unanimously. The whole, the whole zoning commission that was a part of that decision was fully supportive of it. This seemed like a good sign for the Chabad. With fewer hoops to jump through, it seemed more likely that they would get a simple green light from the city to go ahead and build their new Chabad. And then, you know, then starts the redrawing of the plans and to accommodate the new site, which is very similar in scale to the first set of plans that we had drawn up for Meisner Boulevard, but with modifications. Sanctuary, social hall, classrooms, offices, small cafe, you know, that kind of stuff. And we made sure to uh, make the plans as conforming as possible to uh, city code. So we went through a very rigorous, grueling, contentious approval process where we appeared before the planning and zoning committee twice or three times and then finally before city council and like uh, you know again these were highly contentious the opposition was very toxic but we got approval and that's when the real troubles began subsequent to that three lawsuits were filed against the city one with regards to the height one 
with regards to the My Israel Center with the contention that a museum is not an allowable usage for that space. We actually did not call it a museum. We were not presenting it as a museum. It was more of a, a, a high-tech educational center and place of assembly, but that lawsuit the city lost. And the third was uh, a lawsuit in federal court that the city, as I mentioned before, had violated the religious freedom of other groups by entering into a secret backdoor deal with Chabad. All of these lawsuits were filed against the city of Boca Raton, but the Chabad intervened in them all and Beckett represented them. That third lawsuit, the federal one, was an establishment clause claim. These opponents claimed that the city had had some secret dealings with the Chabad. Which was completely untrue. I mean, uh, it was almost laughable and uh, just a, a contrived, speculative, wild theory that there was this backdoor deals, you know, going on, um, just w- without any basis in truth or reality whatsoever. The opposition claimed that the city had secretly promised the Chabad that they would get approval to build on this second lot they had found, and that that's why the Chabad had stepped away from the first lot. You know, the, no such thing occurred. As I mentioned, the, the approval process for that was anything but smooth. So the argument was, you kind of gave them a special deal. You let them come in, kind of have some closed-door meetings with you, set up this arrangement where they were going to be able to build in this space. That's where the establishment clause problem was. But the reality was they just went through the exact same process that anybody goes through. And the the plaintiffs in the lawsuit said that wasn't good enough, that this was somehow discriminatory in favor of this minority religious group, such that the city of Boca Raton was establishing Judaism as the religion of Boca Raton, which is ludicrous on its face. The group that filed this lawsuit was making a claim under the Establishment Clause, which is part of the Religion Clause of the First Amendment. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Something that's tricky about the Establishment Clause is that it has a unique quality of allowing people to sort of clog the courts with made-up claims. So, I mean, the plaintiffs were saying, you know, this is somehow establishing Judaism as the religion of Boca Raton, which is, again, ludicrous on its face. But you still, to get into court, right, to, to make that kind of complaint, you generally have to show some sort of injury to yourself. And so the court said, well, what's your injury? And the plaintiffs scratched their head, and the answer the first time was, I don't really know. And so they got their first complaint dismissed. Then they came back and they said, okay, we figured out. Here's our injury. We didn't realize our first time, but now we know. Our injury is if you build the synagogue here, then the waters are going to rise. The floodwaters will rise and the traffic will get all jammed up and emergency vehicles won't be able to get to our houses, which, again, was ludicrous on its face, right? Because you've got the 22-story condo right down the street. You've got the 7-Eleven across the street. You've got the strip mall across the street. The idea that a synagogue is somehow going to throw off the delicate ecosystem balance um, was was ridiculous, right? And there was even a more pernicious type of argument where the the plaintiffs here they said it's gonna it's gonna change the beachfront character of our seaside village, i.e., if you bring in a lot of uh, Chabad Jews to our neighborhood, 
then it won't feel the same way it did before, which is a pretty ugly thing to say and a pretty ugly thing to to go into federal court and say, I don't want them around here, right? But that that was part of their argument. This argument, if it got any airtime, could do a lot of damage. And that's why Beckett was so committed to getting this case thrown out. One of the dangerous things about this case was if the plaintiffs got any purchase on it, right, it creates this massive disincentive for any sort of religious group to build. Because if you not only have to go through the same process everybody else does, but you have to add on top of it all sorts of layers of hurdles for you to be able to build, uh, to be able to build your building, and then you're still going to end up in court so somebody can, you know, make arguments against you. In this case, that the, the Chabad won went on for three years, right? You tell somebody, that's what it's going to take for you to build your house of worship. What are they going to do? They're not going to build it because it's too much of a headache. It's too much of a hassle. And so the, the loosey-goosey nature of establishment clause claims where, you know, people can just make up claims, make up arguments, and slow things down in court is dangerous. It's dangerous for religious liberty. And so that was one of the, one of the arguments we were making in, in court was, Judge, you can't, you can't allow this to go on. You've got to dismiss this case right at the beginning because it's harmful to religious minorities to allow this kind of additional layer of governmental interference with the ability to build a, a religious home. And the courts accepted that. The courts got it. They said, no, this, this case doesn't even have standing. This case needs to get tossed out before we get any further. The lawsuit started in 2015, and the federal court rejected it in 2016. But incredibly, this was not the end. The opposition to the Chabad tried to file yet another lawsuit, which was again rejected by the court in 2017. And it still wasn't the end. The opposition then asked the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals to take up the case. The opposition to the Chabad was really aggressive and really dedicated. That was just the lawsuit. Entirely outside of the lawsuit, there was a thread in the community that made itself very vocal. And if you ask Rabbi New what drove that separate community animosity, he's very clear. Clear and blatant anti-Semitism. It's just as simple as that. We saw it on Meisner Boulevard, and uh, we saw the same thing again on Palmetto Park Road. The same signs going up, save our neighborhoods, save our beaches, save like where some foreign invader interloper coming to take something away from others. So it's blatant, transparent. You know, if you ask me why is there anti-Semitism in the world, I mean, that's a whole, you know, another conversation. Um, but we, we definitely saw it rear its ugly head here. So there was a time when a student of the Chabad was walking along a public street and he was assaulted and told to go back to Auschwitz. There were a couple times where um, the Chabad's other facilities were vandalized, where um, you know concrete was thrown through one of the windows, where sacred scrolls that were held out in front of the facility, uh, those were broken down and torn down. Uh, there was an instance where there was, I believe, some spray painting on some of uh, the Chabad's facilities. So there were several instances of just really kind of really disturbing and, uh, and heartbreaking discrimination and attacks against members of the Chabad that were during the same stretch of time. I mean, I don't, I don't know that, I don't, I don't know anything that there's linkage between, you know, the, the opposition to the building and some of the incidents here, which have included, 
a swastika on uh, the front of the building. Our side door was kicked in and uh, vandalized. Uh, we had a uh, student of ours was actually verbally and physically attacked. But I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to link all of the above, but I think uh, when people sense that there's when there's a certain climate, then, then maybe it gives people a greater license to feel like they can vent and express themselves because it's sort of out there. The vandalism, the destruction of sacred scrolls, the assault on a Chabad student was driven by anti-Semitism. But what did the lawsuit say? Its argument was that the city had somehow favored religion and was violating the Establishment Clause by allowing the Chabad to have the same access to build on private land as non-religious entities. This is an odd claim. Houses of worship should absolutely be treated equally when it comes to zoning laws. And the city of Boca Raton had taken steps to make sure that was the case. For example, by passing that new ordinance in 2015 that eliminated the extra steps in the permit process that used to be required for houses of worship. It wasn't surprising then that in 2018, the Court of Appeals finally threw out this last-ditch appeal by the Chabad's legal opponents. So the lawsuits were over. But this journey had been a long one for Rabbi News Chabad. He started the Chabad in his home in 1999. Since 2007, they've been trying to build a more adequate Chabad center for their community. Well over a decade later, they still don't have the space they need. These lawsuits have cost them in precious time, community resources, and opportunities. And this is true for many houses of worship that face these kinds of challenges. It's already expensive to get the approvals, right? To go through the process, to get the zoning approvals, to make it all happen. But when you can add additional layers, federal lawsuits, uh, that can be devastating to the ability of a house of worship to be able to get uh, an opportunity to build their home. I think that for a lot of situations where houses of worship and religious minority groups are facing uh, discrimination or governmental pressure, it never sees the light of day because it's too much of a burden. They don't have the resources to, to fight it. And then another piece of this, and we run into it often, is religious groups are often not um, not looking to pick a fight with their local government. They're not looking to kind of be the squeaky wheel. They're actually looking to try to fit in as much as they can. They already kind of stick out anyway because of their religious distinctiveness. And so they're trying to find ways to fit in. This is why it really takes courage for a religious group to stand up and fight the battle. A battle that can be very costly in many ways, as Rabbi New and his community found, but still a battle worth fighting. The thing is, decisions in cases like this impact people of all faiths. You know, over the years, we've gotten support from uh, a local church. We've gotten support from uh, a local mosque. So yeah, that's um, that's been another silver lining, other religious groups, you know, standing by our side, which is a, a good thing. When one religious entity is uh, being discriminated against, every religious community is being discriminated against, and religious discrimination ultimately will lead to discrimination against individuals altogether. 
you know, one of the things when we got to the Court of Appeals, we had briefs coming in from all sorts of different amici who were saying, listen, harm to that religious group is a harm to my religious group. And so I'm standing alongside them. I'm fighting for them. Because if I don't stand for them, this is going to be not just a harm to them, but it's a harm to me. And so I think this is actually a really good example of why people should stand up, should fight, um, even though there were other things that kept the Chabad from getting to the place where it really wants to be and, and still is trying to be. This particular battle was one they did win, right? This particular battle was one they did win. And by winning it, they helped pave the way for future religious groups. One of the practical ways that we can avoid these kind of problems is for courts to clean up Establishment Clause jurisprudence. Because right now, what's happening is plaintiffs feel enabled to go and find anything religious they don't like and complain about it and make a federal case out of it. The Establishment Clause jurisprudence is broken in that respect. And it's an area where the, the law is trending in the right direction, but it hasn't reached there. And one of the very real human consequences of having it wrong right now is that it makes it easier for people like the Chabad to suffer religiously discriminatory lawsuits like the one they had to suffer through. Rabbi Rivinu still does not have the synagogue and building center his Chabad needs. The Chabad has suffered disturbing acts of anti-Semitism to its members and to its existing synagogue. And beyond all that, the years-long court cases have taken their toll on the community. But in a way, the struggle that Rabbi New and his community have endured has made some American values especially clear to him and can be an exhortation for all of us. What really does America stand for? What were the beliefs of the Founding Fathers? And what are the foundational, core foundational principles of this country, what does it mean to be American? You know, we know, the founding fathers were all men of faith, and um, a big part of the uh, creation of America, if you will, was to defend, was to create a, a country in which freedom would be paramount, and particularly religious freedom, and that you can exercise your right to practice your religion freely without any fear of recrimination on any level. And I think if we all, if we all lived like that, we would have a much more just and uh, peaceful society and realize that there's enough space for, for everybody. Thank you to Rabbi Ruvi New and Daniel Blomberg for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode, courtesy of APM Music. Our theme music was composed by Eric McNerney. Beckett is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. Our clients have included Amish, Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and Zoroastrians. 
For more information on RIFRA, our work, and Stream of Conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on social media. Thank you.